My name is Rosie Hill. I'm a senior associate here at Global Council in the Health and Life Sciences team. In 2018, the first integrated care systems were named in the areas of the country most advanced in their preparation for integrated care. Subsequently, as part of the NHS long-term plan in 2019, plans were announced for all areas of England to become part of integrated care systems, also referred to as ICSs. Four years after this initial announcement, 2022 has not only seen 42 ICSs established across England on a statutory basis, but the world has witnessed a global pandemic over the last few years which has shaken up health systems worldwide. One of the many outcomes of the virus is the near burnout health workforce which is operating with high vacancies across the system. And today we will be talking about integrated care systems and how the arrival of these is anticipated to affect the health workforce of England. To discuss this and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Nabina Evans, CEO of Health Education England and Chief Workforce Officer at NHS England, Matthew Swindells, former Deputy CEO at NHS England, Sim Skavatsa, a non-executive director at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, and Dr. Harpreet Sood, practicing GP and board member at Health Education England. Matthew Swindells, thank you for joining us. You were at the helm of NHS England's executive senior team at a time which oversaw the decision to introduce integrated care systems. I'd like to start broadly with an explanation of the role of ICSs and what they intend to achieve within the NHS. ICSs were um, probably first created in around 2016 when we were looking at what the incentives were in, in, within the NHS. And I was trying to work out where we should move to having sort of learnt that the fee-for-service model that we were, we've were we been operating under really since 2000-ish, um, payment by results, as the NHS called it, was really good for driving activity, um, but wasn't brilliant for driving population health improvement. And the question had really moved on since 2000. At that time, all of the discussions were about waiting times and ambulance waiting. Um, Almost nothing was counted, um, bizarre to think now. So what you could see was what you knew, and you could see ambulances queued up on uh, trying to unload outside hospitals. You could knew relatives who waited two, two years for their surgery or six months for a specialist appointment. Kind of has a familiar ring about it, some of it. But, but back in 2000, the drive was all about how do you incentivize hospitals to go do more work? And it was wildly successful. Um, at the time, and we used it as an incentive to almost eliminate waiting within the, within the NHS. But as we looked at where we were five, six years ago, um, it was clear that that wasn't the only question and that, that a couple of things happened. One was that we measured a lot more and we knew a lot more, which meant there were a lot more things that we ought to be focused on solving. And the other was that the general perception of the nature of the challenge facing the NHS had moved on from one which was, how do we get more activity through hospitals to how do we help people live a healthier life and in that way, reduce the pressure on various parts of the, of the health system. So we created uh, ICSs to, as a model for bringing together health systems to firstly recognize that the NHS is a complex system and the pieces join together. You can't just solve for one part of it. But within that, to realign the balance between 
treatment and prevention to create a new focus or an enhanced focus on health improvement and the reduction in health inequalities to create an environment where primary care and mental health and community services and acute trust and social care and the voluntary sector and the private sector didn't see themselves as being in competition around a limited pot of resources, but actually saw themselves as part of a system that had to spend that limited pot of resources as effectively as possible for the for a population. And perhaps something that's become increasingly important over the last couple of years was to try and move on the discussion from workforce, about, about workforce, um, interviewing it as a collective resource that we need to treasure as a part, as opposed to a pool of people that we compete over and trying to change the language around that. And so it had those big thoughts in mind. I close by saying the story out of COVID is, well, we were right. You know, the, the, the effect of working together within the NHS of putting down the silos that divided organisations up and looking at the nature of, of a population's needs was one of the reasons that the NHS responded so brilliantly to COVID. If they had stayed in their silos, more people would have died. And so ICS is now just popping into being, have a really big ambition to move from an activity-based health service to a health-based health service. And it's going to be a difficult journey. Thanks, Matthew. Um, Naveen, if I could move to you. You've recently been appointed as NHS England's Chief Workforce Officer. Can you talk us through the scale of the workforce challenges facing the NHS? Just how big a problem is this? Many people now are talking about workforce challenges, and I'm really pleased that that is the case. It is top of most people's lists, most organisations. I think most organisations, if you go and talk to provider organisations and ask them what are they most worried about, they will tell us it's the workforce. So I see the challenges. The other side of the challenges is opportunity. So this is a real opportunity. We're at a moment in time where we can really come together and do something different. I have a couple of things to say about this. We've always struggled. We've talked about workforce. Uh, Matthew mentioned the fact that, you know, when in the planning for ICS, people had started to think about the importance of, of, of focusing on workforce. But we've, we've always struggled to sort of really nail planning for the long term. Um, and it's often been around, you know, how do we negotiate funding, spending reviews, or uh, funding for education, very much in the here and now. And, and, and it's been hard to focus on the longer term. And with the, for example, the Health Select Committee report that we've just seen recently, with all the, all the work that the think tanks have helped us to, to, to uh, address, and all the Royal Colleges and all the experts are telling us how important planning is. So I think that this is a real opportunity for us to come together to really think about what we need for the short term, the medium term, the long term and beyond. And that we have the opportunity to really come together and think about service and integrated planning, service planning, which then leads to understanding what kind of workforce you need. And then for us to then say, all right, in order to deliver that service in the short, medium or long term, because this is what it's going to look like, we need this kind of workforce with these particular skills. And then it's for us to say, what are the people who need those skills or who have those skills? What are they going to look like? And then we say, so how do we find those people? Is it through 
train, training, education, transformation of the existing workforce. That will be one, one group of people. It's about retention. It's about potentially not losing people. Could people return to practice? It's about focusing on supply, which includes the education and training into our supply, but also other areas of, of, of supply as well, like the volunteer workforce, uh, short term, how do you manage surge? We learned so much during COVID around how we could really flex our workforce capacity um, in a kind of smart way. So there are really lots of opportunities to really look at integrated planning. And I'm using the word integrated uh, that helps us to do this differently so that this is a real opportunity. It isn't just thinking how much money have we got, how much workforce can we afford? Thanks, Navina. Your use of the word integrated brings me on to my next question. I wondered if you could just touch on specifically the role of ICSs in supporting the AHS to overcome some of these pressures. I, so I deliberately use the word integrated because I actually firmly believe um, that the ICSs are a really important part of the whole system. So when we talk about this, so I like to think of us thinking about our workforce from pre-employment right the way to post-retirement and everything in between. And how do we grow people? How do we train people? How do we look after their well-being? How do we support them uh, and reward them? Pay, but also lots of other ways of reward throughout the career in health and care. And how do you actually think that somebody who's at the beginning of their career and somebody at the end of their career, we can really, really use them to, to make sure that they are delivering what they need to. And the best place to do that is closest to the point of care. And in my view, the integrated care system has almost got the right, roughly uh, the right sort of size, capacity, understanding of their local populations. I know that the system vary across the country, of course, but it's that understanding of your local population and understanding of the relationship with all of your stakeholders, which I think is really key to, to knowing your education sector, your labor market, your demography. So I think that's a real um, um, opportunity uh, to work with integrated care systems. And that's part of our plan going forward. Thanks. Um, thinking about that kind of local level, um, Sim is going to come to you next. Um, and thank you for joining us today. I'm keen to get your take on the workforce situation, given your role at Imperial College in West London, where you chair the People Committee. What's your experience of this issue from your point of view at the hospital? Thanks, Rosie. Well, everything that Navina has said and, and even Matthew talking about not thinking about our workforce as a, an amalgus mass really chimes. So at trust level, it's everything that Navina has mentioned. It's almost a perfect storm, if you like. And I just wrote down some of the things that are creating this, this moment in time, um, to, to borrow a phrase. Um, but really, uh, with the cost of living crisis, there comes a pressure point on our staff um, because obviously with the, um, the, the sort of pay uh, negotiation and settlement actually that ha has been agreed, you know, this puts our staff individually on, on, on really tricky ground. It's very tough. 
you know, we're expecting people now to pay their mortgages, get themselves to work, feed their families, you know, and this is looking increasingly impossible. So obviously this then puts pressure on individuals at a moment when perhaps they're already under operational pressure and increases their thought maybe around wanting to leave. So this is really difficult. Obviously, you've talked about COVID. There is post sort of COVID still operational pressures. We've got to get those waiting lists down. Um, and that's still very much on every trust's list. But that puts pressure on the workforce at a time when they're already still burnt out, really, um, and still trying to recover. Um, then you add something like monkeypox on top. Uh, and then you add, you know, the, the, the sort of inability for them to find the training that they would love to do in order to retain them. So we know that training our people um, and giving them extra support and career development is a great incentive to want to stay and work for the NHS. But if their time is taken up through operational pressures and staff, um, sort of a lack of staff, you know, capacity, there is no time. There is that. There, there is no extra time for their self-development. So we're very well aware of this. There's also an issue with violence and aggression. Um, so a high proportion of our staff, I and mean, we've got 14,500 staff at Imperial, you know, and a lot of them face daily uh, sort of aggression. Just in the course and line of their work, um, you know, whatever colour of skin they have, and this isn't acceptable, but it also adds to the pressure in regards to this perfect storm. We've it's really difficult. The trust knows this. There are massive mitigations and plans to try and work this. But the main thing to remember is, you know, people are individuals. They need really good line management. They need a good culture set at leadership level that shows that the trusts, the team leaders, the senior executives, the board are listening, that they understand, and that there's some form of action being taken. Now, those actions need to be short-term, a few short-term actions. So, for example, at Imperial, we understand the work environment is really, really vital. You know, if you've got nowhere to have a proper break and you've got you've done a long shift and there's nowhere to eat properly, this really, really damages our the well-being of our workforce. So we're putting in new hub spaces, new, you know, staff spaces, um, and we put quite a lot of money in to try and create those because we know we have an alien state. So it's things like that that matter. So there's there's a small group of actions you can do, which are not long lasting uh, at the end of the day, sorting out the rotors, making sure capacity is there, is what's going to make a real difference. But you've got to balance that with those short term treats, you know, just some, I, I guess, some, some sort of acknowledgement that there's an issue and some reward. So our trust has started recognizing really good practice, really sort of best practice and best results over a week. And, you know, we share that with the rest of the trust so everybody can know who's doing well and, and what's happening in terms of some of the targets. So it's treating people like human beings. They're tired, understanding it and putting in as many mitigations as you can to try and sort it out. We realize this isn't a short term fix. We've got the data. We understand the issues. We don't need more data. What we need to be able to do is put short, mid and long term plans in place to try and help us. Um, and I'm really proud of what Imperial are trying to do. You know, it's not easy. And most trusts will be working in the same way. Thank you, Sim. Harpre, I think you might want to come in next. Yeah, no, I just want to pick up both from Sim and Naveen's point. I think if I look at where I am as a GP and I'll come on to some of the opportunities I'm 
potentially seeing you know where we are locally but i think broadly across the primary care uh, setting is that you know a big part of the challenge we're facing at the moment is like for example the nhs pension crisis right which is because of the caps and the certain um the way we structure pensions that many gps are finding it hard to continue working so that becomes a big challenge when it comes to recruitment and retention of some of our more senior colleagues and so one of the things that i hope the ICSs allow, as well as wider ecosystem, is that it allows us to be more innovative in terms of how we think about retaining our staff, but also recruiting. On the recruitment front, for example, also, what we also need to understand is that, you know, the NHS is now recruiting in competition with all host of other organizations, and that includes private industry. If I look at a lot of my colleagues in the clinical space, you know, many of them are now being recruited by technology companies being recruited by investment firms internationally. So, you know, these are all employers that the NHS is having to recruit against. So the question for us arises, how do we create an ecosystem that allows to recruit good level of talent to make sure that the work environment's exciting for them, for them to do their job properly, but also how do we retain? And those are, I think, some of the, at the moment, maybe it will be challenges, but I think we can turn them into opportunities because otherwise it will be real difficult and it will take a long time to train a whole host of people over a long period of time. And if you look at a GP, it takes an average seven to 10 years, perhaps, to train a GP. And that is a long time for us to plan ahead for, and we will plan ahead for that. But today, we have to think about how do we think about the next two, three, four years, which is the acute need in the system today. And that applies not only for the GP world, but also beyond that, if we look at other healthcare professionals in both acute settings and in the community and primary care settings. Matthew, perhaps I could bring you in to answer some of those questions that Hartpreet has just posed. I think what's coming out of this conversation, I think is really interesting, is the sense that if you take workforce, and you could almost take any of the great strategic challenges that face the NHS, but if you take workforce, there is both a really big picture thing that needs to be solved and a really local one person at a time thing that, that needs to, to be solved. And, and perhaps as part of what we, what ICSs are trying to do, is, and the reason it's hard, is to do both things simultaneously. So when we try and work out what the workforce is for the future, what medicine will look like in seven years' time and what the implications of technology are and what the implications if we were successful in intervening in primary care, doing better uh, support to people's health. What would that mean in terms of what the workforce in a hospital looks like? These are really hard questions. I mean, part of what we're trying to do is my, my role as chair of the Four Acute Trust in Northwest London is to start to think about what does an NHS life in Northwest London look like? Can we support somebody from the point at which they leave education all the way through to the point of retirement. And they might want to live in different parts of Northwest London at different points in their in their life. And they might want to have different hours in their job. And they might want to have a whole life worth of development that starts them in one place in their career and ends them in another one. And could we wrap around as a population of two and a half million people? We're like a small country. Can we build something where you might want to start by working in the A&E department in an inner city and you might want to end up Doing, uh, doing a community role, we could support all of that. So there's some grand questions about what healthcare looks like. But equally, what people will say, what staff will say is that, that their problems, the challenges they face aren't about what does, what does this look like in five years' time. And if I take an example um, uh, of, um, of, of racist bullying in, in, in a hospital, we, uh, we have an example of a patient abusing a member of staff 
in one of our hospitals. And all of our hospitals have got great policies for these things. But in that hospital, the medical director personally intervened, saw the member of staff, got involved in overseeing directly how uh, how it was being dealt with. And the message that that sent out, that one of the most senior people in the whole organisation took an interest in a clinic clerk who got abused by a patient, sends more messages through your organisation than 15 redrafts of the policy to get it exactly right. You know, and, and, and I think that some of this leading by example, being seen by your workforce out there, understanding um, uh, what's going on and directly intervening, mm -hmm. whether it be around racism, be around long hours, whether it be around working in unpleasantly hot conditions, it's nice to see the senior management out there with their sleeves rolled up, actually in those environments and not sitting in an air conditioned office somewhere. And, and I think that challenge for the NHS today of being able to do big strategic thought and act in a way which if I'm a person working on the front line of health and care, I can actually feel a difference happening. I think it's the challenge for us. Naveen, yeah. if you have a word on that, that would be great. Yes, I think Matthew, you, you described, I think, um, exactly what we all need to do collectively at all the different levels at the same time. You know, addressing the here and now, what's meaningful to our staff now, planning for this winter, planning for recovery and the elective waiting uh, lists and planning for five years and planning for 15 years, because as Harpreet mentioned, if we're talking about a specialist doctor, we have to think 15 years uh, ahead. So it's about doing all of those things at the right place, the right um, and in the right way. And we can only do that if we kind of come together collectively. And which is why I see the ICBs and ICSs, integrated care layer, if you like, as being a really important one for both ways or always, uh, including, if I may add, proper places where we discuss the interface with our other partners and other stakeholders and isn't just about acute trust hospitals. Uh, and when we talk about primary care, we're actually talking beyond general practice. So it's a, I think it's such an, it's such an important space for us to nurture um, and, and really use well. Yeah, but, but I think that's a really important point, Davina and both Matthew, is that, you know, we can't be thinking about workforce in isolation. Not that we are. You know, it has to be thought through what does a future service look like, but also where are the opportunities? Like if I look at, again, using my example, you know, we've been through the ARS program, we've been given lots of new staff, pharmacists, physios, paramedics. And it's really interesting because part of what we're doing now is also redesigning what the service model might look like with them rather than looking at everything through the lens of a GP. Now, you know, of course, you know, there's been talks about, okay, we need more GPs and, and most likely we do. But does that number equate to 3,000, 5,000, 6,000, whatever it might be? The point is, if we look at it through the lens of just a GP, then of course you will need a lot more GPs rather than if you look at it from the lens of well, what is a job we're trying to do for who and how. And through that model, I think then you can really redefine different roles different job planning perspectives, but also then what the role of tech data, et cetera, might well be. And I think that presents an exciting opportunity that ICSs can take on, also where NHS England and others are, again, thinking about. But again, not in isolation, but it has to be factored in as part of the whole service redesign, which is where we're at. Tim, I wanted to come back to you. We've talked about your role at Imperial, but I'm also keen to know more about your experience as a retail and fashion specialist with 30 years experience in the sector. 
What lessons could the NHS and ICS have learned from other sectors in the UK in relation to workforce? I guess, actually, I think Heartbeat sort of brought it up. Innovation, got to be clever, got to think outside the box. And and as far as I can see, coming into the NHS sort of, you know, are, uh, having had a career in, in the private sector, it's that bit that the NHS could do more of. And I think maybe, Matthew and Naveen are right, this, the ICSs give an opportunity for some innovative thinking that isn't dampened by operational, daily operational pressure. You know, it, it, there's got to be space for new ideas to come forward. And of course, in the private sector, and that's the lifeblood and life force of any thriving business. So that innovative thinking, which means you can look at the, you look at your staff in different ways and you look at the, the thing that the outputs rather than groups of people that have got these jobs that have always been there. That's not the way, you know, a business and people are aligned to the business outcome. Therefore, what roles do they need to play? What things do you need to give them? And how flexible can you be? Because what we found as well, um, the fashion industry is full of, you know, really ambitious young people. But even back then, when I was in the industry, they always wanted flexibility. It was the one thing that, that would really turn them on. The money was always reasonable and good, especially in comparison to, to, to the state sector. So that was never really a lever for us. They knew they would get promotion, um, but the flexibility was a key, key component of keeping them and really motivating them. The other thing um, that when I worked in the Arcadia group, and we were part of, we were like a federation. So Miss Selfridge, Top Shop, Top Man, all working within the um, were under the umbrella of the Arcadia group. And what would happen is a lot of the staff could move within each of the brands within the group. So if you were desperate for promotion and you couldn't get that in your individual brand, you'd move. You'd move from, say, Topshop to Miss Selfridge or vice versa without having to leave the group. So we were able to really maintain and keep on some of our staff without losing them to people like Zara or Next. You know, they, they, we were able to keep them within the group. And that was a real, a real good strength. And the other thing is you've got to listen. It, it's the listening and the constant listening, re-listening, re-asking, doing something to show them that you've listened um, and then explaining if you can't put into play what they've asked for. That was the other thing that we were very, our businesses were very quick, very demanding. And so we had to be quick with the way that we responded to them. It was no good, you know, doing a, doing a focus group and then sitting on that information for a year, they'd be out the door by then. So speed was of the essence and not the speed in the action, but the speed in the listening and being able to go back to them quickly with what you were going to do about it. Those are some of the things that we, we used in, in private practice. So that speed of thinking, that innovation, that flexibility, I think they are really quite similar to the sorts of things that the people working for the NHS would, would want to you know, work with, understand and, and would help retain them. Um, so those were some of the sorts of things that that, that really helped us in, in private practice. But also, Sim, one thing you forgot was Nando's offers NHS discount. So that's something that fashion retailers need to think about as well. Um, as we've oh, dear. But at least our fashion retailers could go out and get some food because usually the head offices yeah. were placed Absolutely. in places where there was ample opportunity. Yes, it was a bit expensive, but they could go out and get something to eat. You know, we need to start with the basics, I think. You know, in some of our old estates, 
There's yeah. no more decent arrest in the brain. Absolutely. No, I And look, not what you're wishing to put Matthew on the spot here, but I remember when I used to do nights uh, across hospitals and doing night shifts, you could find no food whatsoever during night shift. And and again, when you talk about flexibility, you talk about looking after our staff, you know, these are some of the basics we need to think about. But but I really struggle, and I'm not sure how much has really changed since then. But again, if we're thinking about that recruitment and retention, these are just basics that we have to focus on. The other thing is um, inclusion. I mean, if you look at the figures, you know, a lot of staff are coming in from overseas. We need them desperately. and We're so grateful um, within our trust anyway. But then comes another package of concern because it's no good just bringing staff in from abroad. They've got to feel like they belong. They've got to feel like they're integrated. They're part of the collection of, of, of people. So the getting is almost the easy part. It's then making those staff feel like they are being listened to, are included, and some of their differences in culture are, are, are adopted by the trusts. And, and we need to be a bit more open-minded, you know, so we've got our overseas staff and we've got our staff from ethnic minorities who also feel like they need to belong. And we've got to work harder at that. Naveen, I don't know if you want to give a word yeah. on that from the NHS yeah. national point of view. I, I did. I do. I, I think that's that bit of the discussion and also the point that Matthew raised earlier, the example of the medical director's intervention, are all things that we can get on with doing right now that have an impact right now on how people feel, on productivity, on joy at work, on giving of our best, on impact on patient outcomes and, and, and our retention and workforce. So those are the short-term measures that we that can really have an impact on, on workforce, whilst at the same time, and I will say this again, some of us need to focus on longer-term planning. But there are so many things that organizations and systems can do right now especially in a collaborative fashion, which again, ICSs and ICBs give us that opportunity to work at scale to improve the conditions and well-being for our staff, which then has a definite impact on outcomes for our, our users of our services. Can I just, uh, we, we've not really touched on, on recruitment, but it's sort of starting to come up in this, in, in this conversation a bit about how people perceive the NHS as a brand, uh, as a place to come work with. And, there's a couple of things that strike me. One is that while some of our recruitment has to be planned seven years ahead because we're talking about recruiting doctors, it is quite a long way down the medical training before you have to subspecialise. And we have created this very tight either needle of 3A stars to get into medicine. And some, if you're coming to uh, Imperial College Hospital to be a neuroscience researcher, we probably are looking for people who are the absolute elite end of, uh, of, of academic brilliance. For many of our medical roles, everyone needs to be smart, but a lot of them, the, we would value you other skills to make you a really good uh, geriatrician or a really good GP. And I, I wonder whether we shouldn't be widening the pipe into medicine in, in a very significant way and, and, and trying to to change that. I'll give you a second thought and then and, and then you can tell me it's all sold or yeah. But but my, my second thought is about the people who aren't medics. Um and if I look at think about my experience working in the States, working for Cerner, an IT company, we were recruiting routinely the smartest graduates coming out of data and IT courses from universities. And they came in with the same ethical drive that they would have come in if they wanted to be doctors or nurses. They were coming to work in healthcare as IT professionals, and they felt they worked They worked in healthcare, although what they were doing was selling software to healthcare systems. 
when they went home and talked to their parents about what they did, they were working in solving healthcare. And I don't think we have got that message across to our young people who want to work in IT or they want to be data analysts or they want, uh, or they want to be accountants, that actually you can, do, you can play your part in solving society by bringing your genius around IT and information into the NHS where we, we can find you really exciting things to do for a career. And I think we scrabble around at the bottom in some, uh, in, in some of those, desperately trying to find people to do those jobs, where actually people should want to be, say, I want to be a data analyst and I want to do it in healthcare because I can help fewer people die of COPD. You know, and, and, and I think there's a big messaging piece here which we're not, that, that we've not managed to get out to, to, to young people when they're picking a career. Naveena, it'd be great to get your take on the yes. kind of skills for workforce and then perhaps we'll move over to Hartbury to talk from a clinician's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, actually, the um, our focus on widening participation these past few years has done exactly as you said. So this year, we've uh, launched the med- apprenticeship route into medicine. Uh, we have we changed where medical schools are uh, located and the, the growth in, in placements. Uh, we've changed the way in which we recruit into universities for behaviors and values. And, um, you know, so widening participation is, is something that's really, really important to us. Um, and, and we've had really good response. And the other thing we want to do is make sure that we match the kind of workforce growth to the needs of the country. So we're looking at rural and coastal population needs, um, but also the local workforce and employment uh, picture um, and how we actually support local communities. Um, And so working with education, higher education and other sectors to do this. Again, I come back to the integrated care system, brilliant place for bringing together the local education facilities as well to support uh, young people, especially coming into getting work. You know, we're a massive employer. So that whole business of being an anchor system is as a fantastic opportunity for the for health and care to play a role. And then your second point about the other professions, you're quite right. We need to up our game to attract people into the other professions, especially as technology and digital becomes so much is growing so much. We would definitely need to think about attracting that and learning from other parts of the world that are ahead of us for sure. Yes, Rosie, I just wanted to pick up on one of Matthew's points about how attractive, how compelling the NHS is as an employer. And if I think about what Naveen has said and what Matthew has said, and I think about it and I frame it around, say, a fashion brand, you know, young people coming, choosing who to go and work with at a high street level, I still don't think it's... I think it's great that we've done the internal work and the apprenticeships are up and on an individual siloed basis, I can see things going on. But I think, I think Matthew has a, a, there's a broader point to Matthew's about how the NHS actually articulates what it does and how it does that. So if you ask a lay person in the street, what one of our patients, you think of the NHS, you think of doctors and nurses, that's it. There's this sort of, you get stuck on doctors and nurses, but as Matthew and Navina pointed out, it's a huge employer of a diverse range of talents. So I think there could be a better job done. Like the, like the fashion brands will, will, will articulate their values, what they stand for. Maybe the ICSs can begin to do this better in a way that they haven't been able, that trusts haven't been able to do this um, 
to before on a wider scale. So I think there's a huge opportunity for some strong communication about values and behaviours around trusts, around ICSs, and also then the types of roles that are available within each of the organisations. Thanks, Tim. It's a really interesting point. And um, Harpreet, that's going to come to you next. You're both on the board of HEE and a practising clinician. It'd be good to get to understand from you what impact you think integrated care systems are going to have on clinicians specifically um, and whether you see this to be a positive policy move for the clinical workforce. Well, look, absolutely positive. There's no doubt about it uh, for, for many reasons. I, I think, um, you know, I, I also think it's not going to be easy, right? It's not going to be easy given the current circumstances we have, but I think there's going to be a number of opportunities. But let me highlight five opportunities that I think are going to be really positive here, potentially. And how, there are three of them are new opportunities, and I think two are those that the ICS will provide a catalyst to to push uh, some of the existing initiatives. The first one is that clearly, you know, this will provide us a good opportunity to ensure that there's greater alignment on patient care. So working in multidisciplinary teams, you know, if I look at my community at the moment, you know, we've got a plethora of new roles coming in, um, and that's allowing us to develop new skill sets, new job plans, but also, like I said earlier, a new way of working. So that innovation, the way we do things, I think is super exciting. And I think taking on board Matthew's point earlier around non-clinical data scientists, data analysts, I think that's, again, a super opportunity. Earlier today, I was only just looking through some of my data here, and, you know, it's such a great opportunity for us to act as a role of Sherlock Holmes, where we go investigate, find those undiagnosed patients, look for those kind of intelligent ways of us identifying and then bring them into clinic. You know, these all present some exciting opportunities, but we just need to create a narrative, but we also need to create the opportunities for people to come in. So that's kind of the first thing is how do we have a greater alignment on patient care and work more closely with our secondary care colleagues and community care colleagues. The second is, and I think this is more of an infrastructure piece, which is, you know, I believe that the ICS will allow us to ensure that there's better flow of information across different sites. At the moment, you know, a lot of the information is siloed. And through greater investment in data and digital infrastructures, we will have a greater flow of information. That's already started, and we're starting to see that. You know, I can access the local care record uh, through GSCT. I know GSCT has had its own problems over the last week, but if before that, you know, we could access clinic letters, we could access appointments, results, etc. And that two-way way of communication, where they could also access ours, I believe, will allow us to overcome IG issues, overcome the challenges that we have with privacy, et cetera, because I think this is all part of the same population. So that, I think, is a second big opportunity. I think the third is that, you know, by coming together in a in a collaborative way across ICSs, which is what it's aiming to do, we can really work together on solving big missions. And one of them, if I can give an example on, is health inequalities. And again, that's been talked about a lot. But, you know, health inequalities, we cannot solve in isolation. I can't sit here in my practice and solve health inequalities. I need to do it in a bigger ecosystem. I need to do it across a population set. I need to do it with multiple partners in my care paradigm. And I think that's where a lot of this is interesting. And, you know, we could tackle certain clinical conditions like blood pressure, we can, you know, or asthma and so on and so forth. But that will be done with clinical colleagues that are beyond my GP practice. So that will be done with secondary care and others. But, you know, we can really have a targeted mission approach through the development of ICSs which is what I'm excited about. And I know that many of my clinical colleagues are also excited by. So those are, I think, the three new opportunities that potentially ICSs present with. The two ones that the ICS provide catalysts to, the first one is, you know, the NHS passport. You know, Sim talked about flexibility, you know, moving across different sites. I, I, you know, we really need to think about that from a 
policy perspective is that how do we ensure that the NHS passports allows things like e-rostering, allows us to move from one site to another rather than every year having clinicians to fill out new forms, do the immunizations again, you know, all that kind of stuff, which just takes forever and it creates a real barrier for us to move flexibly. You know, why is it such a difficult thing for, let's say, a elderly care consultant to come and sit in my practice and do a clinic? You know, we're ultimately working with the same patients. We're trying to solve things for the same patients, but we have created many barriers for that to happen. And that kind of thing, I think ICS will provide a catalyst to, to really overcome and allow us to move seamlessly between sites which again, I know for my clinical colleagues and myself are very excited about. And then I think the second area where there's a real catalyst for ICS to come together on is providing new and different training opportunities. So if I look at Health Education England, you know, we've got our Population Health Fellowship Programme, and that's an example of how we can now think about scaling up those types of programmes, which give clinicians the ability to train in different settings, and not just for doctors, but also allied healthcare professionals, nurses, and so on and so forth allowing us to work and learn together. Because previously, again, we've done a very siloed way of learning and training. And this is, again, an opportunity for us with fellowship programs like this for us to come together and, and think about the patient as a whole. And, and that's, again, where I know I'm certainly excited about it from a clinical perspective and a lot of my colleagues are. So those are just a few things that I think, you know, we, we, there's a real opportunity here, but it only comes if we have bold and ambitious goals um, across the system and across ICSs. Um, and rather than thinking about just today, we need to think about it from a much bigger perspective. Thank you, Heartbreak. Certainly a lot of opportunities to be considering in the ICS arena for workforce, but it sounds very exciting. I think we are at time. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone on this podcast for their insights on workforce and the NHS. This podcast was the first in our mini series on integrated care systems. Um, and I want to remind listeners that next week we will be looking at health inequalities and what ICSs are looking to change in this space. As always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to the challenges we've just discussed, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. My thanks once again to Dr. Navina Evans, Matthew Swindells, Sim Skabatza and Dr. Harpreet Sood. And thanks to you for listening.